This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. And on climb aisle, uh, we got about 300, 400 feet, and the engine just started stumbling. At about the same time, realized that we're not going to make it. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today, we're talking with Jim Johnson. Jim is a 25-year general aviation pilot with about 1,000 hours. He owns a Navion and a Commander, but today he's going to share with us a story when he was flying a Cessna 177RG and had an engine failure shortly after takeoff. So let's listen in on the Skype call we had with Jim. So Jim, thank you for joining us this morning on the There I Was podcast. My pleasure. And the, the way that this started was Jim and I uh, both owned Navions, and we were on a Navion forum, and uh, I had uh, posted uh, a comment about impossible turns, and at what altitude could you make an impossible turn in a Navion and techniques to use? And somewhere in there, Jim said, well, this actually happened to me. I wasn't in a Navion. I was in a, a, a Cardinal, and, uh, and then Jim agreed to come on and share his story. So... Uh, Jim, again, thanks for sharing your story and uh, and tell us about it. Like, what, how, how much flying? T- set it up for us. How much flying time have you had up to this point? And uh, where were you in your flying career when this happened? Well, it it was uh, a Sunday afternoon, and uh, at that time, I probably had six hundred hours, maybe more, a little more, and a little less. But uh, my co-pilot at the time and co-owner in the aircraft and I were going out hot Sunday afternoon to practice approaches because we had recently installed a Garmin 430 Waz IFR GPS and we were going to go out and shoot approaches and we waited till late in the afternoon because it was so hot that day it was in the high 90s so the density altitude was high and we had just decided to wait we taxied out uh, did a normal run up everything was completely normal and took off, and it was at the Bessemer Airport, Bessemer, Alabama, K-E-K-Y. And on climb out, uh, we got about 300, 400 feet, and about 75% of the runway was passed, and the engine just started stumbling, hesitating, and it, it was it was absolutely a 
a moment of disbelief hmm. that this could be happening, but we couldn't turn back. Never did I consider turning back because we were so low. But there was nothing ahead other than the uh, the overrun for the airport and a whole line of trees right at the airport boundary. So and Jim, there's there's two of you. Were you in the the left seat or the right seat? I was. I was flying the aircraft, and and the co-owner was in the right seat. Okay. We looked at each other, but didn't exchange hardly any uh, discussion of what to do or anything else. We just looked at one another in total disbelief. And your first indication was it. The engine started stumbling. Did you notice, was it the noise? Was it the visual of the prop? Or what first got your attention? Mostly the noise and then feeling it. You feel the the engine just hesitating and stumbling and missing. So people on the ground that were, uh, we flew right over, well, in front of the FBO, and there were several people standing outside, and they could hear it. Mm. And with noise-canceling headsets on, then we didn't hear it until it really started missing extremely bad. And you're in the RG, yep. uh, so was your gear in transit at this point? Had you had you begun? It, it was up, uh, or at least it was in transit, because we'd put the gear up and at about the same time realized that we're not going to make it. So uh, the decision at that point was to just nose it over as fast as we could, and it took both of us. I mean, he and I both realized that the stall speed on an RG, uh, clean, and a landing configuration is about 50 knots, so it's in the neighborhood of 60 knots. So at the climb-out attitude we were in, and normal climb-out's about 90 knots, it was taking just mere seconds for those two to to coincide. Mm. Climb-out attitude, speed we were at, and then the stall speed were fastly approaching quickly. So... Pushing it over was an absolute necessity, but it takes seconds for you to realize uh, the engine has just quit. There's nothing you can do. So pushing the the yoke over as fast as we could and get it headed back down and pick up glide speed when we're at minimum altitude, and the my co-pilot, he put the gear back down, and we didn't have any idea that it had enough time to get back down, but I, just the second, I think, that it locked back in place, we hit the ground, and it was kind of an upslope, and beyond that was a pile of trees that had been bulldozed and pushed up. So if we'd have skidded into those things, neither one of us, I would not be talking to you today. Mm, mm. But we hit that slight upslope, and we just started clipping trees, and that's the loudest noise you'll ever hear in your life. But uh, Jim, I'm sorry, let me make sure I understood. So you... Uh, so right after your engine stumbles, and um, did it actually quit on you? It did. It did. So it quit. You saw the propeller freeze, or maybe hurt, or whatever. Yep, the propeller was slowing down, and you could you could tell that mm. the engine was stopping. Yeah, and uh, so you're immediately interesting that it took both of you to pitch over to capture your glide speed. I think one of the things that uh, we don't think about and maybe teach enough is that. When you're in a climb-out attitude and you lose power, your airspeed is going to bleed off so quickly. You were, you said you were at about 90, and you and uh, you wanted to capture somewhere around 50 to 60. Is that right? Exactly, and that happened so quickly. Yeah, it was bleeding off so quickly. It's part of the reason I think where where we have these these stalls uh, in this incident is people don't realize that first reaction has got to be a pretty aggressive pushover to capture that glide speed. Harder, harder than you think. 
Yeah, as, it is hard. I, I, so I've heard that that's interesting that it took both of you because you're also trimmed for takeoff. Um, so that's yeah. a different pitch attitude where your trim is set. So you're actually pushing against what you have the trim set for takeoff, right? Is that part of part of what the effort is there? That's true. That's very true. Plus, the uh, localizer for the glide slope was ahead of us, mm. uh, and I had to just feather the right rudder to kind of miss that. Mm and sidestep it a little bit without dropping the wing. So that was part of it. Having two of us in the aircraft and, and both of us recognizing that we've got to get the nose over and having someone else to help push on it certainly probably saved our lives. But uh, he put the gear back down. I didn't say another word to him. put the gear back down, and I was controlling and flying the airplane as, as uh, best I could at that given moment. So. And did he put the gear down? thinking that um, so you said about three-quarters of the runway was behind you. By the time you figure this out and you've gone forward, you're, you're probably past the runway. He just thought that in that uh, interim sort of – there's probably a grass area a little bit beyond the overrun that you guys were going to land in that overrun. Is that what you were, were thinking in the grass uh, just beyond the runway? We've discussed that numerous times, and he can't answer that, nor can I. He, he said, I felt like that it would be better to have the gear down to than to just slide in. And he didn't, it was just a reaction on his part. Mm. And I was in, not in a position, I was going to let it just, if I can push it over and get the glide speed up and keep it from stall spinning, I'm. that was my objective. Yeah. And then he put the gear down, not knowing, and he can't answer that either. We've talked about it several times, but it was the right decision for us. And it saved our lives because, again, we hit, a little bit of an upslope that projected us back in the air and over a pile of debris that was uh, wow. probably going to destroy the aircraft. So the gear comes down, and um, you're still trying to maintain your, your best glide speed. Uh, I'm sure when that gear came out, that added some, some more drag. It did. You hit, uh, with the wheels down, you hit on top of kind of a grassy knoll uh, a little bit, and it bounces up into the air. Uh, it was at treetop level, so treetop yeah. would probably have been in the 50 to 60 uh, at the tallest trees. Yeah. So. And did that just happen from the momentum of the bounce, or was it that you still had a little bit of speed above above uh, glide speed, yeah. so the combination there of a little speed and a little a little bounce momentum? Correct, a little yeah. bit of both. I mean, we had achieved the glide ratio we were looking for, and then with the gear down, again, it was a little bit of a berm, and yeah. we hit... No, on the low side of the berm, which then projected us back up. So mm-hmm. it was like a little ramp mm-hmm. that got us back in the air. So back up to the tops of the trees, which really helped because hitting them straight on would, again, have been disastrous. But yeah. every single tree that we hit, and I can share the pictures with you, but every tree that we hit slowed the aircraft down. I mean, having the gear down, clipping trees, and slowing down as, as we are uh, – reaching the point where it's going to stall, it's already in the trees. So that was, that was part of our, our survival was mm-hmm. slowing the airplane down and then hitting the trees. And so that you hit the, you hit the berm, you bounce up into the air, maybe 50 feet or so. Correct. And then uh, you settle back down into the tops of, of trees or were you coming Correct. through we the trees? We started clipping trees. Mm-hmm. So we were going through them at that point. The forward momentum was carrying us through the trees and clipping them off and it broke the right wing completely, folded it back, uh, 
the fuel tank was ruptured completely. I mean, you can see inside the fuel tank in the pictures. The left wing on my side was hitting limbs, but didn't get broken like the right wing did. But we landed uh, right next to a tree, which ended up being uh, penetrating, breaking the windshield out, and then my co-pilot hit his his sternum and cracked the bone in the sternum, and the tree is in the cockpit. I mean, it's right mm. in front of us. Mm. So it slid down the tree, and at that point, the forward momentum was finally arrested, and, and the, we had to shoulder harness, thank goodness. Thank goodness, yeah. Uh, that saved us, plus all the windows broke out. Watch that happen. Mm. So it was um, frightening, to say the least. Yeah, you know, I'd, we've we've all heard and had the technique passed to us that if that happened to you on takeoff and you had to and you're headed to trees and you'd point the fuselage in between trees and let the wings take the, the brunt of the impact, was that thought going through your mind? Did you have much control at that Absolutely. point? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the most amazing thing. And that, that's another, it's kind of humorous now, but it wasn't then. But I saw one large pine tree right in front of us. The nose of the aircraft was headed for that tree. So I hit the left rudder hard as I could. And I never expected enough airspeed and momentum for it to have any effect, but it did. It yawed the aircraft left and took the right wing off. And my co-pilot, co-owner made the comment that, yeah, I noticed you turn the aircraft to the left so the wing on the right would be affected rather on your side (laughs) yeah uh, it's amazing i mean you if you're faced with that and you're still slowing down the rudder still has a uh, until it stops flying uh, there is some rudder control man that's really good flying on your part you you uh you lived by that old Bob Hoover adage, fly Absolutely. the airplane as far through the crash as possible, and it sounds like that's exactly what you were doing. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Yeah, as I mentioned when we were talking earlier, there were several things that happened, and and subconsciously or whatever, a lot of things that you've read, a lot of things like this um, situation, you reflect on it real quickly, even though you don't realize that. So flying the aircraft to the ground with a Bob Hoover statement, and I've not. I certainly give him credit for doing that. Don't give up on it. Don't let the speeds get to the point where you think I, all is lost and I just give up. And it, there's always a chance. If you keep flying the airplane, it, the outcome may be more positive than you think. Yeah, that's fantastic. Boy, so now you're sitting there, you, you've hit the trees, the airplane comes to a rest. Um, and that must have been, as you're just sitting there, sort of soaking in what just happened. Uh, what happened there? It sounds like you got a co-pilot there that's in pretty bad shape. Was there fire associated with it? How'd you get out of the airplane? That was the biggest fear. The right, the one thing that we didn't do, as and it is, you can't declare an emergency. You can't do anything when you're that that close to the ground. It just happened so quickly. But opening the door on a Cessna Cardinal would have been a wise thing to do, but it automatically came open. I mean, the door just flew open on the right-hand side. The left-hand side of the aircraft, which I was on, of course, 
was way up in the air. So I'm hanging from my, my shoulder harness. He rolled out on the ground and got out, and I'm still hanging there. And fuel was pouring out because mm. fuel tank on the right was ruptured. Even the wiring for the wingtip uh, lights was bent back beyond 90 degrees. None of the wiring was broken, and fortunately no sparks or anything else set the aircraft on fire. But it would have been consumed in a in a very short period of time because of all the fuel that was pouring out. Yeah. But we, I'm hanging there by my shoulder harness, and he rolled out on the ground, and I finally got the shoulder harness released and fell out on the right-hand side. Both of us got away from the aircraft, and he actually crawled back in and flipped the master off because I was trying to get out of the aircraft so fast. So uh, we realized that we were very fortunate there was no fire. Yeah. So the airplane actually came to rest suspended a little bit above the ground? Did I understand it, that right? It was. The nose was nose was touching the ground. The prop touched the ground right next to it tree the wing was up the left wing was up in the air at a probably well above the horizon so it was 20 degrees left hand side in the air and then the right wing was in the ground so it came to rest with the uh, left side of the aircraft slightly elevated and the right side in the ground on the ground mm. and it happened so fast you guys really didn't have an opportunity to as you mentioned, like turn off master switches and isolate fuel and all that stuff, you were busy doing what you should do is fly the airplane first and maintain control all the way through the crash. So that uh, it really is fortunate that there weren't any kind of stray uh, sparks or anything like that um, to ignite the fuel. Correct. Um, and uh, and so then you you get out, you get a, you get away from the airplane, and uh, my goodness, what a what a, what an event! Um, so as you look back on it. Uh, Jim, what are some of the things that you look back on that you take away um, that were really helpful to you, things that you did well that really kind of saved your lives in that incident? Well, there are several things. that It's, it's a multi-step situation. The first was to recognize that the engine was, was, was quitting. So it takes more time than you imagine that it takes several seconds for you to come to the realization that this is an absolute crisis and I've got to do something very, very fast. And with two of us in there and both of us pilots, uh, we we both realize about the same time that we just need to get the nose of this airplane over because it's going to stall. I saw the localizer uh, antenna array directly ahead and we were headed straight for it. So trying to, you know, give it a little bit of rudder to move the aircraft off to the right so it wouldn't hit that, pick out a spot where we can either slide in or crash into and hopefully not uh, into the trees. And all of this is going on while you're trying to deal with the situation. Uh, trying to go through your emergency checklist is, is something that almost has to be second nature because mm-hmm. you just don't have enough time to try to, uh, in your mind, think if I need to turn off the fuel, I need to turn the master off, I need to do anything. You just don't have adequate time to do anything. And then when you realize that uh, you know, you're going to crash into the trees, you know, tell the person that's sitting on the right to open the door. But you know, Cardinal has 
two doors, but uh, neither of us thought to open the door. And fortunately, the, the door on the right-hand side did spring open. So that was another part of the process of opening a door. You just don't have that, that amount of time. If it's uh, shortly after takeoff, very low altitude engine failure, it happens very, very rapidly. Mm. It, that door ajar uh, that you mentioned, you and I both fly Navions. That's a, a pretty common issue in off airport landings for Navions is that sliding canopy. Yeah. If the frame is bent at all, uh, people have trouble getting that canopy back. Um, and for that reason, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think to myself, if the situation ever comes, I've got to remember to crack the canopy. I'm not sure that I would. And for that reason, I carry a little canopy breaker tool. Talking to a couple of Navion pilots that have been through this who who did get stuck in the airplane and were trying to kick the windows out, and their comment were, those those windows are a lot stronger than you think they are. Well, you're <laughs> correct. And then the older Navions had a rubber gasket that was designed that way so that you could easily kick the windows out. But most of us now have flush windows, and they are uh, pretty much riveted in, so it's hard to kick them out. Yeah, what uh, what have you changed, if anything? What kind of impact did that incident have on your flying in terms of either your preparation or how you think about things now or, or what you do differently? Well, now, every single takeoff, it, it enters my mind. If I lose engine at a certain altitude, where would I go? And our airport is... It has trees on both ends and ravines, so it's not a very forgiving airport to take off from, but Every time I take off from any airport, I find myself looking for a field, looking for an escape route that if I lose an engine. So I, I suppose I had done that before crashing into the trees, but that incident just uh, caused me to have uh, thoughts every single time I take off of where, if I do lose an engine, where should I go? So that process goes on every every takeoff. Yeah, I have a colleague here, and she says that uh, whenever she flies, right before takeoff, she thinks to herself, okay, when I lose my engine, this is this is where I'm going. Good point. And, um, and she said, the reason is I'm trying to get my mind set for the fact that I don't, I don't want it to be a shock and a surprise. I'm expecting to lose my engine and have a plan of action. Uh, and I think that's a, a good technique. It almost sounds like kind of, kind of what you're talking about as well. You know, the reason we're doing this is the comments that were made about the 180-degree the turn back to the airport. Yeah. If I had been at 1,000 feet or, or whatever predetermined altitude that I would have considered turning back to the runway, that might have been a little different. But I have found myself, as a result of this incident, uh, not even considering turning back to the runway until I'm well above pattern altitude. So uh, that... And that helped me a lot. All the discussions that we had had, we have a pilot's association, pretty active pilot's association on the airfield. And we had talked about that very situation numerous times and the number of spin, stall spin incidents that had happened. Some, you know, at, uh, at airports fairly close to us that we were aware that uh, it was a stall spin incident, either because they were turning base to final or on departure or whatever. And all that helps an awful lot into your decision-making process when you're faced with an incident like that. But the turn back to the runway never occurred to me. As a matter of fact, it, it, it was not something that I knew we were too low. There's no way that we could survive it. And the most important thing is glide speed, do not stall. Yeah. 
You know, Jim, you brought up a good point. I think you're so right about the value of uh, flying clubs or associations. And even this really rich conversation you and I are having today started from a post that we made in the Navion group and started talking about the impossible turn. And that led us all to think about that. And it's different points of views, all of which are helpful. And I really just, uh, you know, plead for people to become a part of a flying group of some kind where you can get into these kinds of discussions and learn from other people. And so you gain that experience without actually having to go through the situation. So uh, I, I sure agree with you on the value of those things. It, it truly is uh, a almost a subliminal. It, it's something that you have to think about very, very quickly because Faced with that situation, you have so little time to react. But if you have some things that you can call upon that's just recent or it's something that you've read that impressed you with, well, if I am in this situation, I should try to do this. And that is, if you're a pilot and you're flying by yourself, I don't know that, uh, you know, the reaction time, it differs with every single person, but the reaction time is longer than you think it is. And then during that period of time, the stall speed and the angle of attack are such that you're going to get in a crisis situation in a matter of just a few seconds. So you got to rely on something as to fall back on as to what to do. Yeah, it sure seems like that you pulled uh, back from, from your training a couple really critical things, and that was engine failure, low altitude pitch to, to gain glide speed maintain control of the airplane at all costs and fly it all the way through the crash. And it sounds to me like, Jim, those things made all the difference in uh, what we're sitting here talking to you today or a, or a, a tragic story that we would have read about somewhere. It certainly did in my case. So uh, did they ever find out what was wrong with the engine? They did. The aircraft was uh, lifted out of the the trees by a crane and carried back to a hangar and from that point, we thought, well, we'll figure out what's going on, but it took a while. Um, of course, the FAA was involved, and they came out and interviewed us, and one of the FAA guys was talking to us and asked a couple of very quick questions about how much fuel on board, how did you know how much fuel was on board, the normal questions, but mm-hmm. then he made a statement. He said, you're you're one of the first that we've been able to interview in quite some time that had a incident like this, so it made me feel better. But in any event, uh, the aircraft was taken to a salvage yard in Atlanta, and the NTSB, months later, finally, uh, they were able to get the engine started by putting a new prop on it, and the engine cranked and ran for just a few seconds and then started missing extremely bad, and it was determined that the magnetos were cross-firing or something related to the magnetos. And I might add, on the IO360 in the Cardinal RG, that's a single-shaft magneto, Mm. and both mags are driven by that single shaft. So not that it had anything to do with it, but it was mag-related. So now that's an interesting point. Even though you have two magnetos, there's a single-point failure uh, that will take both of those out. So the, it somehow magneto related, and you would have at at two three hundred feet wherever you were, you would have never had time to uh, to isolate that or even mess with it. No, and and not doing so uh, made all made all the difference. Yeah, that's a good point. If if we try to uh, not fly the airplane but try to get the engine restarted at that low altitude, it would have been disastrous. So it was 
that old adage about uh, the insurance company and who owns the airplane at that point. Well, that, that didn't enter my mind, but it was fly the airplane and don't worry about the destruction of the airplane. Just save our own skins, our own lives, and the airplane takes care of itself. Yeah. Well, what a what a great outcome uh, and ending to uh, what could have been a very tragic situation, uh, Jim. And I, I just uh, I commend you on some excellent flying and uh, your ability to just think in a critical situation. Obviously, it comes from the fact that you had thought about it before and you had gone through some good training, it sounds like, and in uh, your reaction, uh, happened, you didn't have time to think about it. You had to react based on your training and... Uh, Thanks for sharing that with us. A tremendous job. I, I, you know, I can't stress any stronger the interaction with other pilots, reading about other incidents, listening to iPods and other things that help you to understand what's uh, important in a crisis situation will better prepare you to deal with it. There's no question about it. You don't realize that when you're just chatting with someone, talking about an incident where someone's slowed the aircraft, stalled it, and spun in. Don't get in that situation. The best way not to get in that situation is know how to handle it and handle your aircraft, and especially at very low altitude and losing an engine. You'll, you'll certainly have to rely on something and fall back on those stories and things that you have read and learned will come to your aid, no question. Well, great. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Jim. My pleasure. And uh, fly safe. All right. Thanks, Richard. Oh, that's such a good news story from Jim Johnson. Shortly after takeoff, an engine failure at about two to 300 feet, just about the worst case that you can have one. Not enough runway to put the uh, aircraft back down on the runway. And he focuses on flying the airplane and flying it all the way through the crash, and that made all the difference. Thank Jim for sharing his story with us. I'm so pleased uh, with the outcome of that. And it really brings up the point of uh, Jim gives credit to the flying groups that he's been a part of, and that really is the genesis of this podcast. We started that discussion as part of a flying group, and that's why the Air Safety Institute promotes and encourages all pilots to join some type of flying organization where you can sit around and talk with other pilots about situations and techniques and learn from those vast experiences. To see photos from Jim's incident, you can go to airsafetyinstitute.org. That's airsafetyinstitute, all one word, dot org, slash there I was, and click on the link in the episode description. If you like this podcast and you'd like to support us in other things we do to support aviation safety, please consider going to aopafoundation.org slash donate and consider a donation to help us continue this and our other important work in aviation safety. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash thereiwas. I Was.